Gracious Father, Lord, we've already sung songs that remind us of your glory and your majesty, the greatness of who you are as our Creator. We thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. This morning, once again, we have been uplifted and refreshed and revitalized by the just a reminder that despite our sin, that you love us and that you sent your Son Jesus to die in our place for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And that, Lord, the great enemies of death and sin have been conquered, not by us, but by our precious, risen, ascended, exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that we are in Christ, that he is in us, that we are in union with him by faith, by faith alone, and that it is not based upon anything that we've done or continue to do that you have accepted us because of the merits of Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you this morning. May we do so in spirit and in truth. Father, we do pray for just our church this morning. I pray for your people. I pray for those who are hurting, who are experiencing difficulties in life, things that maybe others don't know about, but you know our hearts, and you know the experiences that we have, and you know the difficulties and the temptations that come with living in a broken, fallen world and being broken, fallen creatures. Father, I pray that you would uplift your people. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would grant them perspective, a Christ-exalting perspective, that they might live in the light of the resurrection of Christ victoriously by your grace and in the power of your Spirit. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from destructive sins. I pray that you would rescue us from Sins that, Lord, are an encumbrance to our running the race to win in this life. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at your right hand victoriously. We await his return. We want to live in the light of his victory. We want to be reminded of the fact that He is returning to deliver the final death blow and that we will reign with Him someday. Father, we know how the story ends. Help us to live with hope in the light of that. Father, this morning, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from Your Scriptures. Help us to be people who are eager listeners, humble listeners, who are doers of Your Word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44 is our text for this morning. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. This is God's Word. In his teaching, Jesus was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. 
Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I was listening to a couple of talks this week, podcasts I think they were, where the hosts were speaking about the age of fear that we're living in. We're living in a culture, in a day and age, where people seem to be afraid of just about everything. If that was true before, how much more now, they were saying and discussing, that we're living in a culture where people are afraid of health, of having bad health or getting sick. People are afraid of their financial needs, suffering lack in the future and even to their retirement and all of that. People are afraid of for their security and safety in a country where maybe that was a given before. And people are now afraid of the fact that that's been taken away from us. People are afraid of all kinds of things, afraid that their freedom and their liberties are going to be taken away from them, afraid that our government is going to fall apart. All kinds of fears befall us they were talking about this. And you know, As I was thinking about this, I think there should be reason for us to be concerned. As I processed this this past year especially, I think we need to be concerned and we need to be watchful and observant about all the things that are taking place in our society. And we need to live, I think, responsibly. Belief in the sovereignty of God and an affirmation of the fact that God is in control of big things as well as little things doesn't mean that we live recklessly. Amen? It does mean that we can take parameters and precautions, and we've sought to do that even, as you know, this past year as a church and practice sensitivity, mutual sensitivity to one another. And so I think there is room for, to be concerned and room to live responsibly, but this is a culture of fearfulness where people are very afraid of so many things. And one of the greatest fears that I hear from professing Christians in particular is the fear that one day soon there's going to be the disappearance of Christianity. You know, they look at the world, they look at our country in America, they, they look at the spiritual decadence of our society, they look at the atheistic mindset of people or the redefining of God, the biblical God, or the redefining of so much of what God's original design for the family was, or for gender and such things like that. They look at all of these things, and they get very concerned, and they think to themselves, and they communicate this, Christianity is over as we know it. There are many people who are so concerned, living in such fear. And I don't know about you, and as you listen to this stuff, flying around on the internet, or maybe in conversations, or on TV, or social news networks or whatever, when you hear all of this, I don't know how you process it, but to me, it seems that we have a great opportunity before us. That more than this being an an insurmountable obstacle that church, church, uh, the, the church has never experienced, it seems to me that we have an amazing opportunity before us and we should relish the opportunity to see the gospel advanced even in the midst of such things. More than anything else, that's been something the Lord has impressed upon my heart. Because I believe that God wants us to know that there is a line being drawn on the sand right now in, in, at this stage of redemptive history. 
There's a line being drawn on the sand between what is real and what is phony. Between what is genuine and authentic and what is counterfeit and false. Between what is true and what is error or falsehood. I believe that we are in a very strategic time in history. Even as we speak of biblical Christianity. A time where we are separating the sheep from the goats, so to speak. That the Bible talks about. And I'm comforted as we think about all this by passages like the one we have before us this morning. Where Jesus graciously teaches on the distinction between uh, religion that is empty or vain or religiosity, if you will. That is the contrast or the opposite of biblical true Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus genuinely. So I love this particular text that's going to be so helpful to us as we think about this. Now remember the context again. On Sunday, Jesus finally arrives to Jerusalem. He enters anticlimactically, not in great pomp as your typical human ruler or king, but he enters Jerusalem in great humility, seated on a donkey. And then on Monday, if you remember, our Lord cursed a fig tree along with his disciples, symbolizing God's judgment upon Israel for their hypocrisy and their counterfeit religious system, their superficial, hypocritical religious system. And he also went in in a great act of zeal, as he had done at the beginning of his ministry, and he cleanses the temple, which had become a a place of merchandise, a place of robbery and for robbers. The temple had become a circus rather than a center for worship. And Jesus, in a great act of zeal for his Father's glory, cleanses the temple. And now it's Tuesday. On this Tuesday, which chapter 11, verse 27 of Mark, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 44, on this Tuesday, Jesus has been engaged in all kinds of controversy, controversies with the religious leaders. All kinds of controversies, all kinds of questions that they've asked him. Not questions that were based upon a genuine desire to know, but questions that were meant to entrap Jesus. And Jesus, of course, answered perfectly, didn't he? And definitively every single time. And oftentimes by going directly to Scripture. And so now, after interrogation after interrogation, Jesus goes on the attack now. And two weeks ago we saw that in verses 34 through 37 of Mark 12, Jesus asks the religious leaders a question about his identity. And he taught them from Psalm 110 that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, would not only be a descendant of David, but according to that passage and many others, he would also be God himself. That the Messiah would be the God-man, Jesus taught them. Verse 37 tells us that the, that the crowds enjoyed listening to all of this. They enjoyed listening to him. And they didn't enjoy listening to him because they believed in him. They enjoyed all of this because... Uh, He had put their pompous religious leaders in their place. So they're entertained by all of this. And even the religious leaders, it's evident by how things um, unfold after this, that they are still hostile. They're still unbelieving toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Jesus really turns up the heat. And he's going to both expose their faulty religion and illustrate real Christianity and what really it means to follow after Jesus. And so we want to look at these, this, these verses under two primary headings, okay? 
First of all, I want you to notice in these verses the condemnation of false religion. The condemnation of false religion in verses 38 through 40. We've seen in Mark, even through the cursing of the fig tree, that Jesus is not happy, is not um, pleased with what he sees as he watches the religious system of his day, Judaism, and what Judaism had become. He's not happy with that. But the thing to understand as he now addresses the crowds, the multitudes, is that false religion always begins with false leaders, right? False religion always begins with false, corrupt leaders, as is always the case, beloved. As leadership goes in any religious system, so does the, the people of that particular entity. So do the people. And so in verse 38, if you notice, in his teaching, it says, he was teaching continually. He was saying, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. This is a warning from our Lord Jesus to the multitudes directly, a caution. You know, I think it was one of the reformers who said that a faithful good shepherd always has two sticks. A stick to guide and to gather the sheep, and a stick to, or a rod to, to fend off the wolves that might come by. To protect the sheep. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. He's the ultimate good shepherd. And so here he cautions the multitudes. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. And notice who he's calling them to beware of. Beware of the so-called experts in the law of Moses. Of the so-called scholars who boast of great knowledge in their study and in their interpretation of the scriptures. The scribes were at the cream of the crop. They were the, the guys that people went to for answers. Jesus says, beware of those guys. Now, is Jesus against studying scripture? Is he against the interpretation even of Scripture? Of course not. He himself was the ultimate student of Scripture. And he was the author of Scripture. And so his problem is not with the, somebody who studies the Scriptures, but his, his problem is with the character of these leaders who set themselves forward as the leaders of the people, but they are corrupt because character to Jesus matters. Character to Jesus matters. You know how you know when there's counterfeit religion, look at the leaders. Jesus says you will know them by their what? By their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. All you have to do is look at the fall, even in our own society, of so many so-called successful pastors of these mega churches, mega missionary agencies, mega so-called Christian ministries. Time and time again, we see that character matters. And beloved, time and truth go together. Eventually, the character of individuals is exposed, right? Such as in the case of some of these individuals that we're seeing, so-called fall in our society. But it wasn't just a, a dramatic fall. It was incremental if you would have seen a video of their secret lives until they went public. Character matters. And so notice Jesus, Jesus' problem is not with the study or in the interpretation of Scripture. It's with the lack of right interpretation and application of Scripture that has led these guys to be corrupt in character. And notice their character in verse 38. They are ambitious. These guys are ambitious men, sinfully ambitious. I mean, it's good to be an ambitious person. Paul said that we have as our greatest ambition to be well-pleasing to the Lord. There's a way to direct 
ambition towards the glory of God and doing all things for the glory of God. But what we're talking about here is sinful ambition. A sinful drive that these guys had. Look at verse 38. These men like to walk around in long robes and like, respect, and like respectful greetings in the marketplace, as Jesus says. Nothing wrong with long robes. These were typical, especially of religious people. Or is there anything wrong with respectful greetings? It's good to be mutually respectful toward one another. And it was okay for these guys to do that. But again, the, the problem is a heart problem that they had. These guys loved to seek glory from others. They were power-hungry kind of individuals. And to them, the, the long robe and the respectful acknowledgement from others is what they craved. They idolized to be thought of as elite or to be thought of as powerful individuals. Notice that not only are they ambitious, but they are also proud, aren't they? Look at verse 39. They like the chief seats in the synagogues, Jesus says. Beware of these guys. And the places of honor at banquets. In those days, in a, in a typical Jewish banquet, what you had is that the host would invite all of his um, people that he wanted to have over, but he would also invi- invite a couple of people to be seated to his left or situated to his left and to his right. And of course, if somebody asked you to do that and honored you that way, that was okay, as long as the host invited you to do that. But these guys craved that. They craved the positions of honor. They were so proud that they manipulated situations in order to gain the approval of people and to have those positions where they would be on the spotlight and to be noticed by other people. Not only were they ambitious and proud in character, but they were also, noticed greedy. Greedy, and this is especially troubling here. Especially troubling. When you think about spiritual leadership, Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses. Now think about this. That terminology there is, they were like ravenous wolves who preyed on these widows. They were like sharks swimming around, looking for an opportunity to devour these individuals. And you know, widows, that in that society, at the top of the list of people who were weak and vulnerable were orphans and widows. From the very Old Testament, God's people are told again and again to care for people like orphans and widows, the least of these in society. In fact, James one twenty seven says that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so in the case of widows, these were especially needy individuals. They had lost their husbands. And yes, that they had been left perhaps with a measure of inheritance, with money and property and animals and farms, etc. and all of that. But instead of being helped along and given instruction and guidance by the spiritual leaders, what did these guys do? Instead of honoring and protecting these ladies, what these scribes did, they would exploit and rob these widows of their inheritance. How sad, how devastating to them that they would be befriended, that they would pretend these guys to be accessible to care for them, all the while subtly stealing from them. These vulnerable individuals. You know, this sounds so much like today, doesn't it? We have leaders and people who do this in churches all over the place. People who target ignorant, naive, weak, vulnerable people and exploit them. 
They're not after doing what is best for them. They're not after giving God glory by self-sacrificing for these individuals from the heart. They're after something that these people have to offer them. And that is the counter opposite of what a spiritual leader is to be about. We are here to serve God for His glory by serving you selflessly and with no pretense in the heart by the grace of God. These guys were the opposite of that. Well, if sinful ambition, pride, and greed wasn't enough, notice their hypocrisy in verse 40. It says that for appearance sake, they, these leaders, these false leaders, offer long prayers. They love long robes. They love long prayers, not because those things are sinful in and of themselves. Even prayers, there's nothing wrong with long, fervent, heartfelt prayer, right? We've met some uh, prayer warriors in our life, in our lifetime. Back in college, this week I was telling the pastors in a joking kind of way how I had this roommate back in college, probably about 10 years older than me, seminary guy and all of that. Just a great brother in the Lord. Great friend in the Lord. He's back east now, living in the east coast. And this guy loved to pray. I mean, he loved to pray. But the hard thing for us, and I got to admit, sometimes it was even a sinful hardship in my heart, is that every time we would ask this guy to pray, he would always pray long prayers. To the point where we were thinking, is this guy for real, man? He, He cannot be real. Well, the more that I lived with him, the more that it was... Obvious that he was a real prayer warrior. He'd be up at 5 o'clock in the morning praying. Sometimes he'd do like sleep, all night prayer. And one of the hardest things was asking him to pray for the food, right? (laughs) You met those people? Oh my goodness. This guy. I mean, if he had read Psalm 119 that morning, Lord, we opened up our prayers by thinking about the 10 characteristics of your word from Psalm 119. I mean, we were asking, dude, just pray for the food, for crying out loud. One to two minute prayer. We know that you're a prayer warrior, right? And you know what? My friend was genuine in that. He really was. He was a true prayer warrior. Nothing wrong with heartfelt, long prayers, beloved, if that is who you are in secret. If you are genuine and authentic in secret. But long prayers are primarily for your private time, and short prayers are for public time, right? Yes. Great. Next time I show up to the prayer meeting, you guys are going to be praying 10-second prayers. Don't do that, brethren, okay? Look, my friend was genuine. He was authentic, but not these guys. These guys offered long prayers to be noticed by others, to appear to be super hyper-spiritual, to bring the spotlight to themselves, to bring the, be the center of attention. This was their character. And beloved, listen, this is the way it is in false religion. As the leaders go in these entities, so will the people, and their, their character is corrupt. Wherever you have false religion or a counter system, counterfeit system of spirituality, you have leaders, so-called spiritual leaders like these, who are selfishly ambitious, who are proud, who are greedy, who are hypocritical. That is true in every case. You know, this has been quite the eye-opening past year on many levels for me. And I know for you as well. And one of the most eye-opening things for me has has been the naivety, the gullibility of so many Christians, not only in our country, but all over the world. People are so naive. 
People don't study the Word of God to be able to discern not only between what is good and bad, but what is best for them and what they need to expose themselves to. It's been very eye-opening to see all the professing Christians who are easy, easy prey to false leaders and destructive ideas. And the head-scratcher for me has been that people get all bent out of shape. I mean, it's one thing to be naive and to not know better. It's quite another thing when you exhort them or you encourage them or you lovingly come alongside of them to care for them, how they get offended and they get all bent out of shape because you want to caution them out of love and care for their souls. And some of you have shared even your experiences of coming alongside of family members and other professing believers and how they've responded in hostility toward you as you've sought to warn them out of love and care for them. That's been so eye-opening to see all of this. Oh, don't be so critical, Pastor Kempis. Don't be so mean, such and such. Don't be so unloving. Don't be such a fighting fundy. Listen to me. Jesus had the strongest words for false religions and false teachers and false hypocrites who didn't practice what they preached and who led the people astray. I mean, how's this for political correctness? You brood of vipers. How's that for political correctness? You whitewash tombs. You hypocrites, you blind guides of the blind. I'll tell you what, Jesus didn't have, at least, at least documented in our Gospels, words like that towards the prostitutes of his day, towards people who were effeminate, towards people who had um, uh, outward sicknesses and all of that. He didn't talk to people like that in the same way. He talked that way to false teachers who were leading others astray and leading down a path of destruction, didn't he? You hypocrites. Later on, he's going to launch into a series of woes against the religious leaders, against the hypocrites, against the self-righteous Pharisees, who not only are destroying their own lives and their unbelief toward the Messiah, but also are leading others astray and destroying the lives of others from a human perspective, unless God delivers them out of that. Wow. So don't talk about, you know, it's unloving to be calling out sin or to be calling out error and all of that, listen to me, it is absolutely loving to be doing that. It is what glorifies God to call out a wolf and name the wolf by name because your soul is at stake. And shepherds understand that, including, and and at the top of the list, a great good shepherd. Amen? This is who he is, Christ. This is why Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31 warns the Ephesian elders upon his departure. He says, Be on guard for yourselves, Ephesian elders, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own, what? Blood. I know that after I'm gone, there are going to be those who are going to seek to come in from without, and even from within, he says, false teachers will arise seeking to lead people away from Jesus and after themselves. He says, Ephesian elders, you need to You need to be ready for this. Be vigilant. Be watchful. And we take that very seriously here as your pastors and elders as well here in this church. That's why it's so important for us to protect the doctrine of this church and the teaching of this church. Because that is what you are partaking of. It's like being okay with giving you poison physical food. None of us would want to give our children that. 
Why would we want the sheep of this church to partake of, of filth as far as doctrine goes? Erroneous doctrine. As your doctrine goes and as you internalize doctrine, if it's false or good, it will flesh out in your life, right? Just like physical corrupt food won't lead to anything good as far as your health goes. What's our Lord's verdict in all of this? Look at the end of verse 40. He says, these will receive what? What, beloved? Greater condemnation. Underline that word greater. Not just will they receive condemnation, but these guys who are leading people astray will receive greater condemnation. Why? Because the more you know, the higher the spiritual calling, the greater the accountability before Almighty God, right? This is why spiritual leadership is a great privilege. It's a wonderful grace of God. I pray that some of you young boys in here, some of you young people, young teenagers, some of you young men, already that God would be seeking to awaken in you a desire to follow after Jesus and one day be a leader in God's church. I'm living the dream, man. Seriously. Pastors, elders, aren't we living the dream? We're living the dream. It is difficult to shepherd the church of God, but it is the greatest, most fulfilling thing that I can ever imagine doing in this life. We're living the dream. But let me tell you something. It's a great responsibility. It's something that we carry out with a great sense of fear and trepidation. Because Hebrews 13, 17 says that leaders, listen to this, will give an account for your souls. Man. Obviously, that is not salvific. That I'm going to lose my salvation when I stand before God someday because I was deficient in my shepherding. But at the very least, it means that for us as leaders, as far as it depends on us, we want to be faithful to the call to shepherd God's church well. And the power of the Spirit by the grace of God. Our Lord Jesus, more than anyone, knew this. That's why as He prepares His disciples back in Mark 10, 43, for Him to go to the cross. Remember what He said to His disciples? He says to them, you wish wish to be great in the kingdom? They're talking about who's going to be greater and who's going to have the place of prominence. He says, you want to know about true greatness in the kingdom? Be a servant of all and be sacrificing for all, right? Be last of all and servant of all, he says. You want to lead? Humbly lay down your life. That's how some of you young men right now begin to set yourselves apart. In a very genuine way. You already, behind the scenes, you just want to go meet needs. You want to serve other people. You want to set up tables and chairs. You want to be the first guys there to help break those things down so that you can begin to be a servant leader in the church without a position, right? Somebody once said to me, if a man is not an elder when he's not an elder, he ought never to be an elder. What do you mean by that? That before you ever get a title, pastor, elder, deacon, ministry leader, whatever, you need to operate and function that way and the title comes later because it's just an affirmation of who you already are in character and in function as you serve in the church, right? Humble leadership is what Jesus wanted to see. And then he said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was calling them and us 
to walk in his steps. How did Jesus serve us? By laying down his life sacrificially for our sins. Amen? So we follow after our leader. Listen, if anyone had a right to fight for his rights, it was Jesus. If anyone had a right to fight for his position, and he would have been right in doing so, he would have been righteous in doing so, it was Jesus Christ. Jesus was eternally the Son of God, co-equal with God, co-creator of the universe, the owner and the sustainer of it all, big and small. And he, during his humanity, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians chapter 2. What does that mean? That even though God... Jesus did not leverage, seize upon his rights as God, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a trailblazer of humble service and leadership, right? Completely the opposite of the guys that he's warning the multitudes about, these scribes. They're completely the opposite. And beloved, listen, at the very least, an application for us on Jesus' words here, is that you and I need to beware and not be naive and gullible. We need to beware of exposing ourselves to so-called pastors, so-called preachers, so-called missionaries, so-called evangelists, so-called leaders of missionary entities, whatever they may be, humanitarian efforts, whatever. Beware of these guys who love to attract a crowd, who crave the accolades of people, who are pompous and self-exalting, but they don't love God and they manipulate others to get what they want. We need to beware of this, especially in our society today, of people who are looking to exploit you spiritually, emotionally, and financially. So many charlatans out there seizing upon the moment not to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true biblical gospel, but to advance their own causes and their own agendas and exploit the people of God. Lead people astray. Beware. Beware against leaders like this. And by the way, this is a caution for all of us on another level as well, isn't it? Not just for even us as leaders, but beginning with us as leaders. To be careful about the danger of being one of these religious types of people. People who are religiously ambitious, proud, greedy, hypocritical. False religion is full of people who lack character like this. Beloved, for all of us as followers of Christ, we need to be careful with faulty, false religion and religiosity rather than biblical Christianity. Faulty religion, which focuses on externals only, devoid of heart, with no heart engagement of devotion before the Lord. We need to be careful with a a diminished version of counterfeit Christianity where it's all about downgrading Christianity to a set of moral standards. Moralism is not the gospel, folks. And especially right now, are there moral implications for you being in Christ? Absolutely. It's called Christ-like sanctification, isn't it? But is moralism the gospel? Absolutely not. Because we have the perfect example in these religious leaders of moralists who didn't believe in Jesus. And many of them, most of them, as far as we know, are in hell right now. Moralism does not equal the gospel. We need to be so careful. The way of 
The cross is different. Jesus came to show us a different kind of path. Biblical Christianity and following after Jesus is different than this counterfeit religion and these counterfeit false teachers and leaders. The way of the cross is not self-exaltation, but self-condescension for the power and the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God. It's not about self-promotion, but deference to others by the grace of God. Biblical Christianity is not about being self-serving, but being others-minded. Jesus spoke so much about this, and he modeled it for us, didn't he? The one who had infinite riches, eternal glories, laid down his life for people and touched people and cared for people on a very physical level. He was the ultimate example of compassion and power under control, wasn't he? Our Lord Jesus. But the system of religion here in Jesus' day beginning with her leaders, is completely the opposite. It's empty religiosity. It's, it's empty formalism, superficial formalism. It's even so-called obedience devoid of heart, which doesn't please the Lord. And so Jesus, out of love and care for them, cautions them about these false spiritual leaders who are going to lead them to false spirituality and vain religion that can never save and never offer true hope, Right? What they offered these people could never offer true hope. Let's look second at the commendation of true relationship. The commendation of true relationship. In verses 41 through 44. True Christianity, far from empty or impersonal religion, is fundamentally about, listen to me, a relationship with God Through Jesus Christ. And everything flows from there. Biblical Christianity is not worldly religion, empty philosophy, religiosity, moralism. It's about first and foremost a restored, reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And here we have an example, a great example, of a little lady who loved God much and thus sacrificed much as one example in her life, which was the aspect of giving. But now, as, as with anything in life, okay, if you're going to appreciate something beautiful here, then you have to compare it with the stark opposite, right? So let's look, first of all, at the prevalent hypocrisy under this in verse 41. The prevalent hypocrisy. This is one example of how the corruption of the leadership here had trickled down to the people of Jesus' day, even as far as when they came for alms given to the temple. Look at verse 41. It says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. And what you need to understand here is that somewhere between verses 40 and 41, our Lord Jesus would have made his way from the court of the Gentiles to the next inner court of the temple facilities. And that place was called the court of women, that next inner court. And it was in the court of women that there were 13 large brass receptacles where Jesus would walk up and pour in their coin offerings. No, they couldn't Venmo anything back in the day, okay? I know that that's shocking for some of you who have grown up in this culture. You couldn't PayPal, couldn't write a check. You brought your money physically to the temple 
and poured your coins into this large brass receptacle shaped like a, these, these things were shaped like trumpets and they had a large lip or mouth at the top and then narrowed down to the bottom. And so all these people are coming and the Lord Jesus here, now in the court of women, sits down to observe the activity of the giving in the temple. And if we've learned anything about our Lord Jesus is that there's intentionality and purposefulness with everything that he does, right? So there's purpose and intentionality for why he's even here. Verse 41, if you notice, says that he began observing and underlined this word, how, in other words, in what manner, how the people were putting money into the treasury. Jesus was not just concerned about the what, but the reason why you did things. And he continues to be, to be that way. God is not just concerned about what you give, but how you give it and the motivation with which you give it. And so Jesus is watching here. And this is where it gets really interesting. What does Jesus observe? Look at the end of verse 41. That many rich people were putting in large sums. Large sums. Remember, this is the week of the Passover feast. This is a a huge week in the life of the nation of Israel. There are people from within Palestine and outside of Palestine pouring in many, many people in the hundreds or thousands, bringing in massive offerings that they've been saving up all year to come and bring to the temple. And so people are giving a lot, putting in large sums. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong here in this text with people who give a lot. If the Lord has blessed you with a lot, then you should give in proportion to that. You should give more. You should give in accordance with your capacity. Nothing wrong with that, with large gifts. But that wasn't the problem yet again. It was a problem of the heart, wasn't it? Because the problem is that as as some of these rich folks would put in their large offerings into this brass trumpet-like receptacle, you could hear the coins in this public place making their way down these metal objects. You could hear the loud, clanking, deafening noise of these offerings going down these receptacles, of your amazing offerings. And you can imagine that some in the temple were probably like, wow, Big givers, man. I mean, I don't think they said man back in the day. Big givers. What a great sacrifice. What devotion. How spiritual those people are. And listen, some of those people who were offering, bringing those big offerings, liked it. They liked it. Others might have been very genuine in their bringing of those offerings. But there was a great hypocrisy in the day. They were doing what Matthew chapter 6 Verses 1 and following said not to do. There in that passage. Why don't you go there with me? Matthew chapter 6. This is good. Jesus has talked about this before. I think it's good for us to go here. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. Notice, beware. This is a sermon on the mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. 
But when you give to the poor, do not, be, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What about when you pray? You are not to be like the hypocrites, verse 5. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What about when you fast? By the way, these were three of the main tasks or, or acts of devotion that the Jew would, the common Jew would offer to God. They would give, they would pray, and they would fast in verse 16. So what about that? When you fast, verse 16, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglected their appearance so that they may be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see the contrast? There is the the practicing your righteousness, your obedience before God, to be before people, to be eye pleasers, to be men pleasers. And then there is the practicing righteousness from the heart before God in a God conscious kind of way. Where you live, live your life God consciously, aware of the presence of God, that it's ultimately God knows my heart and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I live to please him first and foremost. And did you notice all of the references, by the way, to Father? Verse 4, your Father who sees what is done in secret. Verse 8, and pray to your Father. Verse um, 8, for your Father knows what what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father. Verse 14, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, verse 15, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Verse 18, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will repay you. There is a difference, beloved, between doing things, practicing religion before the eyes of people, and biblical Christianity, which is based upon a relationship with your Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, right? And now we obey we worship, we devote ourselves to the Lord, we walk in loving obedience and grateful obedience because of what He has done for us. It's a response to His saving grace, not us trying to perform so that we can somehow please other people and gain favor before God apart from Jesus Christ. Huge difference. Huge difference. And Jesus was always about calling this out because people were like this back in that day. And people were self-righteous even today or are self-righteous like that. There are so many people who live their lives before others rather than before God. They may serve to gain a position in the church. They may even serve to gain favor with God in some capacity. I've done some bad things this week, so now I'm going to make it up to God by serving in this and this capacity. Or you may give in order to have pull in the church to have influence and decision-making in some way, shape, or form. There are people who practice outward, outward religiosity and religion rather than inner relationship with God. 
whereby you love God and you love other people, right? And Jesus was always about calling this out. What is the contrast? Notice the pointed contrast in verses 42 to 44. 42 to 44. The camera zooms in now on an example, an unlikely example from our Lord Jesus. In verse 42, a poor widow, a poor widow. He's just warned about men who devour widows' houses like these, like this poor widow. And now perhaps this is one of them. And look at the text. She's not just a a widow, but notice she is a poor widow. Literally, one widow, a poor one. One widow, a poor one. Mark is emphasizing her extreme poverty. This woman has nothing. This woman is destitute. She has absolutely nothing to offer. You know, in my travels a few years ago, I got to see so many of these poor widows like this in foreign countries. And it was amazing. Similar to what I've seen, frankly, in our wonderful church here, even through our deacons and many others of you who care for widows behind the scenes as you do. I saw in these foreign countries, churches come alongside of widows like these and really do an amazing job of caring for their needs. Well, this is one of those widows. She's got nothing. She's of no reputation. And yet even in her extreme poverty, notice verse 42, she came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Notice that she she came. She could have been embarrassed. There's nothing outwardly attractive about her to behold. She comes in her extreme neediness. She didn't care who was watching. She came. Because for her, it wasn't about who was there. It wasn't about men watching her, people watching her, people assessing her. It was about God. She was a devoted woman who had come to worship God with her offering. And let me tell you right now, according to our text, it wasn't very much of an offering, was it? Verse 42 says that she put in into one of these receptacles two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Imagine that. That was hardly... Any noise when she put in those two little coins, right? Hardly any clanking. In the midst of all of the noise of people being there, nobody would have heard this. These were the smallest coins used by the Jews, by the way. The smallest coins. What she put in, ready for this? Was equivalent to less than one of our uh, uh, pennies. Less than a cent. If you want to get an idea of the equivalent to our day and age. I mean, this is, what a contrast. Rich people here are putting in an enormous, impressive amount of money, coins, loud, deafening, clanking everywhere. And some are even feeling self-righteously boastful about this. And this woman puts in a laughable two small copper coins. Now, if this account just ended here, we might conclude, what a silly little lady. Oh, how cute. You know, God bless her little heart. She's so well-intentioned, but silly. Or come on, what's she trying to prove? Surely God expects more than this, doesn't he? I mean, he couldn't possibly be pleased with such a small, insignificant amount of money. If the account ended there, we might conclude a number of things. But it doesn't end there. Jesus always has the final word. And so what is his assessment that is always perfect and final? What is the lesson to be learned here about this woman in verse 43? Notice 
calling his disciples. This is another teaching moment. Gather around, kids. In this case, his his 12 disciples. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you. That's Jesus' way always of saying, pay attention. Listen carefully. This is absolutely crucial for you to understand and for us, beloved, to understand what Jesus is about to say here. Here's the lesson. Shockingly, Jesus says, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Say what? Really? I mean, at first glance, this this sounds outrageous on the part of our Lord Jesus. And please note, He's saying not only more, she put in more, but more than all the contributors. Implication, all the contributors combined. All of them put together. She superseded their offering. I can imagine one of the disciples thinking to himself, raising his hand saying, Lord, excuse me, I think you made a mistake of arithmetic. Are you sure about that? Jesus explains, verse 44, for, here's the perfect rationale of Jesus for why her her offering was the greatest offering of the day. Here it is. For they all put in out of their surplus, that is, they gave out of their abundance, out of their excess. In other words, it was easy for them to, to give from what they didn't need. But she, out of her poverty, that is, from her extreme need from her destitute condition put in all she owned all she had to live on and the point here of course is not that it's somehow spiritual to give everything that you have but jesus is speaking here about her heart attitude as seen in her offering to jesus it wasn't about the the size of this woman's offering it was about the sacrifice of this woman's offering right it was about her sacrifice. Yes in, yes, in the eyes of people, this poor lady had put in an insignificant amount. But listen, in the eyes of God, which is what matters, she gave more than the rest of the people combined. Her offering was the best offering of that particular day from Jesus' assessment. Because what does Scripture say? First Samuel sixteen seven: For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart and so what jesus is saying is it's not about the money guys here is an example of the attitude of the heart that you need to have when you give listen we should give we are commanded to give regularly we are commanded to give generously we are commanded to give joyfully as this little widow did also sacrificially We are commanded to give. She gave everything she had. Where was her next meal going to come from? When was she going to eat later on? How was she going to pay her little bills? How is she going to get around? She could have had all the excuses. She gave sacrificially. And that sacrifice more profoundly said something about the greater, deeper issue, and that was the condition of her heart. She loved the Lord. She was a woman in relationship with God who loved God, and her dependence was upon God. She trusted God for the outcome. Jesus praises her for her heart attitude before him. See, the amount you give is certainly important. We should give in proportion to how God has blessed us. 
But the attitude, the manner in which we give is more important to God. And what you keep, not only what you give, is important to Him as well. Right? Our Ken Hughes insightfully writes this, quote, God does not want our money. He wants us. Yet we cannot give ourselves to Him apart from our money. It is true, money speaks. It tells us where our hearts are. What does our giving say about us? There is a disease that is particularly virulent in this modern age. It is called cirrhosis of the giver. You know where he's going to go here, right? It was actually discovered about 34 AD and ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It is an acute condition that renders the patient's hand immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is to remove the afflicted from the house of God since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternate environments such as golf courses, clubs, restaurants. We might add Dodger Stadium, right? Actually, this disease is really not a motor problem, but a heart problem, he says. The best remedy is to fall in love with God with all your heart for where your heart is, there will your treasure be. See, it's ultimately about relationship. Even in our giving, as one example of our Christianity, it's about our love for God. That's the issue. It was about this woman's relationship with God and her love for God, and that is what is the case for us as well, beloved, and our obedience. It's grateful, loving obedience. What a contrast to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders this woman was, you see. Again, this system of Judaism that Jesus is contrasting here was an apostate system of dead, lifeless religion and religiosity rather than about heartfelt relationship with God by which also as an outflow of our love for God, we love other people. That's why we pray. That's why we read scripture. That's why we give. That's why we serve. We serve, beloved, out of a relationship with God, out of a heart of love for him and love for other people, not to earn God's favor because only Jesus Christ on the cross earned the favor or or, uh, was accepted as a sacrifice for our sins, right? Only Christ merits. Through him is how God can accept us, not by anything we do. There's a key lesson for us here about motivation, isn't there? Let me ask you this morning, why are you here today? Why are you here today? As we think about this distinction between religion and practicing religiosity, externalism, devoid of heart, and relationship with God, why are you here this morning? Are you here willingly, joyfully, because you long to worship God? Even you kids and young people, why are you here today? Because your parents forced you to be here? No wonder you're going to launch out of your parents' home from under their umbrella, so to speak. And the relationship will change. And you will have to make your own choice whether you will be with the people of God or not. Whether you're going to pursue a relationship with the Lord or not. You will have to do that. It's best to check your motivation now. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why do you give? Brethren, why do you give? Do you give to impress others, to impress God, to have a greater say in what happens in the church, to gain a position as a way you give to to judge other people in what they give or don't give? Check your heart motivation. Why do you serve? 
Do you serve out of, out of a heart of love, devotion, and gratitude for what God has done? Or do you serve to appear spiritual to others? Because you're trying to gain God's favor, to get on His side. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Is it for the eyes of others to appear to be somebody that you're not? Or is it before the eyes of God, your Heavenly Father? Is it about a relationship or about worldly religion and worldly ideological systems? Religiosity, externalism, devoid of heart. It's a question of whether we have the real thing or not today. It's a question about whether you're simply practicing religion, empty, vain religion, or if you're actually in a vital, living relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so I want you to ask yourself a personal question again before the Lord in the quietness of your own heart right now. Are you merely coming in and out of church gatherings, serving, church attendance, whatever, as like a Pharisee? Ask yourself, am I a Pharisee and merely going through the external motions, practicing empty religion today, or am I truly in a relationship with God through Jesus where I am worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Am I the real deal or am I a fake and a phony? And listen, you can fool God, fool people, humans here on earth for the rest of your life as long as the Lord would have you here. But you can't fool God. He knows your heart. And today, so today is the day of repentance. This day, today is the day where you can be genuine before the Lord and be reconciled to your maker by faith in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation for you, where it can cease to be about externalism and hypocrisy and pretending to be somebody that you are not and secret sin and all of that. And, and today can be the day where you can come before God and f- sit down at the, lay down at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, please save me from my sins. Please make me genuine. Please make me real. Please forgive me. Please grant me eternal life. Are you real or not? Are you about religion or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ this morning? That's the question, isn't it? You know, I mentioned at the beginning to you that people get all bent out of shape or, or worried these days about Christianity disappearing off the face of the planet. Listen to me. That isn't going to happen. Right? What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not, what? Overpower it. That's a promise. That's a guarantee from our Lord Jesus. The risen, ascended, exalted Christ was returning. But personally, I got to tell you, I am thankful that nominal Christianity is disappearing from our country. I am thankful that moralism as a counterfeit form of spirituality is disappearing. Can I say this? I am thankful that the Bible belt as we've known it historically is being exposed for its hypocrisy. Many people born into quote-unquote Christian homes who've never repented of their sins, never trusted in Jesus, saying that they're Christians in the Bible belt. And then later on we wonder, what happened? They grew up in the church. They heard. They were never born again. I'm thankful that that's disappearing. 
That it's not about geographical location, but about a true relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, we should be thankful that now, as in other times during the history of the church, there is a purging of the church taking place. A purging of the church taking place. And that now, moving forward, there is a cost, a price for following after Jesus Christ. You cannot be fake or phony anymore. Into the future, young people, you cannot pretend anymore. You understand? You cannot just be going through the motions. You're either real or you're not. There is a line being drawn on the sand right now and into the future of what comprises a true follower of Jesus. And you and I need to be real. We need to be genuine and authentic before the Lord because there is a price to pay now. And I know about you, but I'm willing to pay a temporal price to gain an eternal reward. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace in your Son, even as we celebrated his atoning death earlier through communion. And we remember the fact that, Father, it doesn't matter what happens in this world and the difficulties that we face. Father, we have so many fears in our hearts. We're afraid of everything. Father, help us to repent of that. Help us to put our trust in the glorious, majestic God that you are the one who is unrivaled in power and might. And Lord, above all, as we see people fearful of death and fearful of so many things, Father, help us to bring the hope of Christ to bear upon their lives. Lord, help us as believers, those of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus, to live in the light of the victory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.